In the shadow of the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, the radio and online series Peace Talks Radio was begun to preserve a bit of the media landscape for talk about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution strategies. The goal of the program has been to explore how we can reduce conflict, both inside ourselves and between each other, as well as tell the stories of peacemakers throughout history, the famous and the less well-known, to shine a light on the enormous variety of peace work that is going on in our world. This edition of Peace Talks Radio presents more engaging moments featuring our guests of the first 10 years of the program, 2002 to 2012. If you'd lost a loved one in the terrorist attacks of 2001, how would you have responded? We found that some victims' family members channeled their grief into work for peace by joining a group called September 11th Families for Peaceful Tomorrows. Among the group members we spoke to in 2007 was Anne Mulderry, whose son Stephen was trapped in a conference room in one of the twin towers of the World Trade Center and died that day. As far as enemies and who we view as the cause of our troubles, I'll tell this little story because it was one of the first instances of my being brave enough to speak my mind after my son's death. And I spoke my mind to a truly treasured person who came to me and said, what they have done to your son is so terrible, and I know they are in hell. And I loved this person who said those words to me, and I knew it was an attempt to comfort me. It was a desire to comfort me. And I said to him, all I can say is that my darling son Stephen has gone to another world in the company of the people who did this. And all I can see is him saying to them, as I heard him say to his brothers on the basketball court, what'd you do that for when somebody had done something they shouldn't have done? I don't know how to explain my faith that that is the case, but I do believe that we all share in the guilt of the violent solutions that are affected in our lifetime. And I believe we can all share in the healing and peace if we will struggle, as Martin Luther King says, and that's the name of our group, wars are poor chisels for carving out peaceful tomorrows. If you think you can make a peaceful tomorrow with a war, you're a foolish person. We, we need to, to work so that we don't have terrorism in the world. But the best way in which to do that is to uphold human rights and international laws but to deal with the root causes of violence. Mairead McGuire was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize along with Betty Williams in 1976 for their work for peace in Northern Ireland. She spoke with Peace Talks Radio in 2006. And it's very important to ask the question, why do young people um, use violence? I lived in Northern Ireland and I seen young people within my own community taking up the gun for the armed struggle in Ireland. And I had to try to understand what possesses a young person to take a gun or to go on hunger strike to the death or to be a suicide bomber. Um, And what I came to realise is that we're each born with an innate sense of justice and human dignity. And when that justice is abused by states or governments and that human dignity is denied, when our basic civil rights to a right to food, a right to home, a right to our own country, um, when those things are taken away from us, then we get very, very angry. 
Uh, and what do we do with that anger? Uh, because we must, in all consciousness, protest injustice. You cannot sit back and say, it doesn't matter, I'm doing nothing. But when you see injustice, be it poverty, abuse of human rights, be it invasion and occupation of your country, you must resist. But we have to learn the ways of nonviolent resistance because violence is always wrong. You know, armed uh, suicide bombing, that's wrong. But if we don't try to tackle the root causes of why people go to this extreme and all call for of despair, it's a call of despair, then I'm afraid we are not going to be able to solve these problems. Twice, Peace Talks Radio spotlighted the work of a summer peace camp in northern New Mexico that brings together Israeli and Palestinian youth to learn empathy for each other's struggles. Friendships often develop, as it did between Israeli Jew Mai Freed and Palestinian from Gaza Joanna Galeb, who speaks first here with our host Carol Boss about trying to get through an Israeli checkpoint after being ordered to turn back arbitrarily, it seemed to her. All the people in the car, they were in fear, like, Joanna, stop, don't talk to the soldier. He will arrest you or he will hit you or shoot you or something. And my dad was so afraid because, like, stop talking to him. But even that, I talked to him. He don't, like the soldier, he doesn't speak Arabic and I don't speak Hebrew. We, we talked in English. And I tried to communicate with him because I know at the end, even if he told me this is the army and there's no humanity, in some point he's a person, he's a human, and he will think about it. So beyond the face, beyond his eyes, you were able at that point to see a human being. Yeah. And this soldier who may have had a gun that he was holding. Because, like, I know that every person like has a human being inside his heart, but the situation make him be bad or think in this way. So I tried to talk to him about a human being because I know that when he will think about it, he will think in humanity or remember that there's something called humanity. And that's what I learned also from Creativity for Peace. So I want to ask both of you, do you, do you think for example, how to listen and how to speak and being able see, to see the humanity in, in the other, is, um, is that a pathway to peace? My? Absolutely. When you learn to speak your truth, people are listening. When you try to speak peop- like people's truth or like nation's truth and everybody has his own truth and just cause kind of like antagonism. But when you speak your own truth, People can notice that you're a human being, and nobody, nobody can, can ignore that for the long term because everybody has this human being inside of him. So when you show that you are a human being, it's much, much easier to listen to you as a human being and, and to treat you better. And I think that that's, that's a little secret that many people don't know. They try to, to talk as if they're like representing a group or an idea instead of just representing themselves. I was in Iran a year ago, and a lot of people said, oh, you're going to Iran, that must be so scary. And yeah, I was a little scared. In fact, we came within uh, just uh, inches of deciding to leave our big, expensive TV camera in Athens and flying in with our little, tiny sneak camera, thinking, well, people, when they know we're an American film crew on the streets of Tehran, they're going to be throwing stones at us. Rick Steves, who hosts popular public TV and radio programs about travel, talked with Suzanne Kreider of Peace Talks Radio about how international travel can promote peacemaking. 
But uh, we got there. Thank goodness we kept our big camera, and I've never been received so warmly. I was stuck in a traffic jam in Tehran, and, and uh, the man in the next car, I remember he motioned to my driver, roll down your window. He handed over a bouquet of flowers, and he said, give this to the foreigner in your back seat and apologize for our traffic. Uh, you know, there, there's no grounds for fear for an individual walking the streets of Iran. And me, this big proponent of don't be afraid, I was afraid. So it's just a, a normal inclination when you go to places that you've read about uh, from, I think, bad media, you, um, you develop fears. And a cool thing about travel is you overcome those fears. How do you do that? Well, by meeting people. I mean, I met those people in Iran. A woman walked across the street to me and she pounded her finger on my chest and she said, I want you to go home and tell the truth. We're strong, we're united, and we don't want our children to be raised like Britney Spears. Mm. Ooh, I thought she's really, she's motivated by fear and love, just like a lot of Americans. You know, she's afraid her kid will grow up to be a, uh, if America values crept into their society, she'd lose her child. That child would become a boy toy or a sex, a drug addict or a crass materialist. And she's got her own family values that she's afraid of. You know, and later on, I was in a traf- another traffic jam in Tehran. It's a city of 14 million people. There's a lot of traffic jams. We were just stuck in this traffic jam, and suddenly my driver just blurted out, death to traffic. <laughs> and here I am under a sign that says death to America, and my driver is saying death to traffic. And I asked him, what's going on? I thought it was death to America or death to Israel. He said, no, in Iran, whenever something's frustrating in us and just out of our control, we say death to that. So the death to traffic. Right now he's probably saying death to election fraud or death to Ahmadinejad. Um, so, you know, we can take these things in, in bumper sticker kind of um, uh, intelligence and think, oh, they all want to kill Americans. Or we can realize that um, they're frustrated and the way they say damn is by saying death too. We say damn this and damn that. Damn those teenagers. Damn those uh, construction people. Well, what are you saying? You want them to die and burn in hell for an eternity? No, it's just after midnight. Turn the music down. Damn those teenagers. Um, so they say death too. If that's all you know about Iran is they say death to America, you are a sorry excuse for a political analyst. It's much more complicated than that. And unfortunately, most Americans don't know much about Iran that they didn't learn from Ted Koppel. And uh, Consequently, we got 70 million people that we're dealing with here in quite an interesting struggle. There are wonderful stories and wonderful scripture in all the religious traditions about the importance of of doing more than tolerating somebody from a different background, uh, actually building a relationship with them, actually serving them, actually cooperating with them to serve others. That's Ibu Patel talking with Suzanne about his Interfaith Youth Corps project in Chicago, which promotes understanding and cooperation between faiths to foster peace. So in the Holy Quran, one of my favorite lines comes from Surah 49, that God made us different nations and tribes that we may come to know one another. David Little's a scholar at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and he outlines three possible levels of looking at tolerance. We can be indifferent, we can endure, or we can learn. And In your work at the Interfaith Youth Corps, you really promote that third level of tolerance. You promote learning something from different beliefs. But wouldn't indifference be good enough? Wouldn't it just be great if we didn't kill each other? At the Interfaith Youth Corps, we don't use the term tolerance. We use the term pluralism. And I think pluralism is both more important and less controversial than how David Little describes tolerance, and I'll tell you why. Because pluralism is a pragmatic situation on earth. 
It does not describe how we view the other person's theology. It describes the type of sociology we want to build together. It doesn't describe whether we think the other person's version of heaven or salvation is correct. It describes how we want to build a city or a campus or a community with one another. At the Interfaith Youth Corps, we talk of pluralism in the terms of how people from different backgrounds can live together in ways characterized by understanding and cooperation. So when I sit with a Hindu or a Buddhist, I might have dramatic disagreements with his or her theology. In fact, I might have dramatic disagreements with the way that a lot of Muslims interpret their tradition. But my question isn't, do I agree with your theology? My question is, can we live in some sort of mutual trust and loyalty together, number one, as citizens? And number two, are there actually ways that we can find common ground within the social action dimensions of our tradition so that we can actually serve others together? And you might have a very different idea of salvation than me. But that doesn't mean that we can't try to, to reduce homelessness in our city together. And, and I think that that's the future. The future isn't arguments over theology or arguments over salvation. The future is common action towards the common good. Pico R. One thing that seems to confuse people, I think, about the Dalai Lama is he's so happy in public despite all the suffering of the people of Tibet, despite all the suffering in the world, it's almost like there's not enough outrage. How do you explain that? Pico Iyer wrote a book called The Open Road, documenting the history of, and his own travels with, the 14th Dalai Lama, one of the world's foremost advocates for peace and compassion. I was traveling with him in Japan two years ago, and we were, drive, we were riding in the bullet train from Nagoya to Yokohama, and by good fortune, a journalist came into our ca- carriage and asked that very question. He said, Your Holiness, you've seen 1.2 million of your people killed. You've been in exile for 50 years. Really, all you've witnessed is suffering, and yet you're most famous for your smile. How is that? And instantly, without hesitation, the Dalai Lama said, My profession. And I'm not sure exactly what he meant by that. There are many, many ways of of, of taking it. But I think it may have partly to do with that monasticism, with his sense, unbreakable, that in the long term, things will work out for the better, that uh, for all the three steps backwards and the zigzags along the path, ultimately, each human is slowly moving towards a clearer understanding uh, of reality. And whenever I ask him about the Tibetan situation, he always says, short term, no hope, long term, Definitely, there'll there'll be a resolution. And I think by thinking in terms of centuries, uh, he's not prey to the moment-by-moment convulsions that are more and more um, our masters because I think the world has accelerated and we're living in the midst of this 24-7 news cycle. And so we're almost permanently riding a, a roller coaster. And he's like a monk sitting next to the roller coaster, seeing things in a much against a much wider horizon and in a much larger context. And of course... As your question implies, it's difficult for his people, uh, though they are Buddhist, to see things in terms of centuries. And they do say, well, we, we understand that that's how a Dalai Lama thinks of things, but we want a better life for our children. And he has to say, well, that's not guaranteed. But in, in the long run, what you do in the short term has consequences. So please be careful what you do every day of your life. And finally, the world as a whole and the human family will reap the benefits of that. So usually I made a distinction, the compassion, 
there are two kinds one biased limited one unbiased unlimited now biological factor that compassion is limited biased that i think common with other animal now we have this special brain this intelligence so with help of intelligence with help of right view as a social animal we here we are not isolated from the rest of the 6 billion human being so that love or kindness now infinite unbiased the first part of the compassion cannot extend towards your enemy the second part of infinite compassion compassion with wisdom that can extend towards your enemy through training now through utilize human intelligence So the Dalai Lama said there are two kinds of compassion. A biological limited compassion and an intelligent unlimited compassion. I'm wondering if the research supports the concept of unlimited compassion. Dr. Siegel, can we really overcome this primal response we have of fight or flight when we feel threatened? UCLA's Dr. Dan Siegel is also director of the Mindsight Institute. and author of a book called The Mindful Brain. I think there is evidence now that loving relationships can create that first biological limited biased form of compassion and that's something that every child on this planet should be given the opportunity to have that supportive relationships generate that kind of compassion we have for those near to us. But then the Dalai Lama said as you pointed out with mind training for example in mindfulness practice you can move beyond your biological tendencies you can actually begin to stop being imprisoned by the natural biological reflexes we have that when we're threatened we shut off our circuits of compassion and that we don't see from another person's point of view um at those moments of being threatened So with mind training with mindfulness training you can in fact uncouple automatic reactions you can awaken the mind and stop being on automatic pilot Now what this suggests is that we have a responsibility to bring this kind of mindfulness practice this reflective skill into the world of education and into the world even of adults who can continue to learn across the lifespan so that if you will we have a reflective science a a form of reflective skills we can teach based on science that actually widen our circles of compassion and dissolve what Albert Einstein called the optical delusion of our separateness and we come to realize in fact we're all a part of one human family The practices come from the Buddhist tradition. Is there any resistance that people are afraid they're being programmed or that researchers are proselytizing to them? There's absolutely nothing religious about it. This is a form of brain hygiene. It's just a matter of people ha- taking the time and having the intention to create a time of the day where even if it's just for 5 minutes, you have a practice that we call a mindful awareness practice that involves focusing let's say on your breathing and having an awareness 
of where your awareness is focused. But this sounds kind of tiring. I have to be aware that I'm aware. Hearing the phrase aware of awareness may be tiring because it's a little complicated, but it's actually quite simple and energizing. Instead of it taking time, it actually expands time for you, where the time you do have, not just in your practice, but during the day, is made richer and more interesting. And so it feels like you've had a fuller day that's been more rewarding rather than actually taking more time. We have to fight that temptation to to lash back to, um, you know, all of these things that we've just been describing. And, and here's the thing about dignity. In 2012, Harvard scholar Donna Hicks talked with us about her book, Dignity, the essential role it plays in conflict resolution. Even though we're all born uh, inherently valuable and worthy, the fact is we have to learn how to act like it. And so it doesn't, what, what does come naturally is our inherent worth, but what doesn't come naturally is our understanding of how to treat people as if they're worthy. And so I think my, my message to people would be th- these are some, they, they, there are 10 ways in which you can clearly um, get good results when you're in, in a conflict with someone. And if you can rise above it, if you can get your me to calm down and you can get this other part of yourself that has, a, has the capacity, is stronger than the me, because you have to really fight that, that temptation to, to lash out. But if you can get that, develop that muscle and learn how to actually honor people's dignity, here's the key, that when you honor someone's dignity, you strengthen your own. You're listening to a special edition of Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and this is the second of two programs we've assembled to mark the first 10 years of our series, highlights from 2002 to 2012. And you can hear all of the complete programs from which these excerpts come by visiting our website, peacetalksradio.com. You can page through year by year there or search our master list of episodes to hear more and to see our latest work, all at peacetalksradio.com. You'll find there a couple of episodes that consider the pursuit of better civility in our political discourse. Suzanne Kreider hosted the first of those programs in 2004. And would each of you, I hate to say it, share a soundbite about what you feel is the most important piece to remember about improving uh, political dialogue? And we'll start with Kate Nelson, managing editor of the Albuquerque Tribune. Pay attention. Dr. Guy Burgess, co-director of the Conflict Research Consortium at the University of Colorado. I think the key is to focus on persuading others that your view of the world makes sense, but at the same time being willing to be persuaded yourself. Dr. Gil St. Clair, a lecturer in political science at the University of New Mexico. Well, I I don't think I can improve on what Guy has just said in terms of... of, uh, trying to persuade others that uh, you mean well and accepting the fact that they may mean well as well, even though their views are different. You can disagree, but you can be friends. Then in 2012, we tackled the political civility challenge again with former Republican congresswoman from Maryland, Connie Morello. Disagreement is healthy, and if you can respect your colleague, and if you know your colleague, you've got a good chance of respecting the colleague, then you can work out the differences. So I submit that more needs to be done to get members to know each other, to respect each other, and then I think they'll be able to work better together. George Washington, when he was 16 years of age, 
he wrote down rules of civility, and one of them is uh, one that I think is particularly appropriate. He said, every action done in company ought to be done with some sign of respect to those who are present. So I say that because if you want to look at what it means, it's that we should respect each other. If we respect each other, there's an opportunity for trust, and then there's an opportunity for working together, working out differences. If we respect each other, then civility is part of it, uh, and I think we can get more done. So good old George Washington, when he was 16 years of age, copied down one of the best rules of civility and, and good behavior. Coleman McCarthy is a former Washington Post columnist and also for 25 years a teacher of peace studies courses in Washington, D.C. area high schools and colleges. He says he feels the classroom is the place to assure a more peaceful society. I'm all for anti-war marches, but the marches don't do it. You go into classrooms and systematically educate people, I think that's the best way to go about it and the most effective way and the most moral way. It's much easier to teach a child to be peaceful than to repair a violent adult. I think education is the way to do it, to give people information how to solve their conflicts. So that's where the peace movement needs to be. Obviously, there are violent adults in our society. Once heinous crimes are committed, what to do? Incarceration? Execution? Rehabilitation? The death penalty still exists in about two-thirds of the United States and is supported as punishment for murder by about 60% of U.S. citizens in polls. New Mexico's Jane Davis fronts an organization called Hope House that offers support for at-risk youth and death row inmates, offers them at least someone to talk with. Jane Davis has been fascinated with how to respond to criminal cases since her grandparents were attacked in their New York apartment home when Jane was just a teen. There was blood all over the walls, paintings were slashed, my grandfather was unrecognizable, the man had tried to, he took bites out of all over his body, um, they had fought, the man got away. And I traced the blood and I ran into Central Park and I'm standing in the middle of the park where the blood dribbled into the grass in Central Park. And I'm standing there looking at this vastness, and it was like he's gone. And I just, I had, I was thinking, who was this? How could one person do this to another human being? It didn't make sense. This man had to have had some good. He had to, he needs help. And, and if we don't help him, that I don't want this to ever happen to anybody else, what happened to my family. It compelled me even more to go meet these monsters that everyone, you know, seemed to know were out there. So I kind of went and traveled around to death rows and prisons around the country, even internationally. To this day, Carol, I still have not met that monster. I have met human beings who were sociopaths, which is a very profound mental illness. And so how we could have any expectation of someone with a mental illness to behave in a way that um, we find acceptable, is it, it's not going to happen. And I have sat with men 
on death row and in prisons and women who have done unconscionable, heinous crimes towards others. And, um, and yet there is always that spark of light and humanity. And I would say they don't need your judgment. They need your help. And when you are so judgmental, you cut off the ability for anyone to change and grow. And by our harsh words, we cut off the ability to create peace with another. I could not believe that people actually cared about people in prison. That's James Alexander, who served 28 years in prison on a second-degree murder charge. He participated in a different program called Alternatives to Violence while in prison, and he's trying to use the lessons he learned there in his restarted life after being released. You know, when you find someone to treat you like a human being, uh, not like you are just... uh, someone to be thrown away, it uh, has an impact on you, Curl. Uh, and it had a great impact on me. What would you say was one of the more valuable skills that you learned and were able to use? I would actually say assertive communication. Can you explain that? Well, being able to, to stand or sit across from an individual, uh, look them in the eye, and understand that that. Uh, they are not your superior as far as being better than you. Uh, just because they may have, you know, more uh, money in their bank account, they may have a better suit and tie, they may uh, know how to shoot a basketball like Michael Jordan or say a speech like President Obama, it doesn't mean that they are a better human being than you are. So if you start with the Uh, from the place that you are equal with the person you're talking to and you are valued just as they are valued, you are loved just as they are loved by their family and friends, if you enter into a conversation from that perspective, it's difficult to be angry, to be violent, not to hear that other person. On one Peace Talks program, our host Carol Boss talked with former prison inmates who grew up in substance-abusing families. One, Alicia, began using at the age of 11 and progressed from alcohol to marijuana to cocaine to meth. At 21, she was convicted of attempted first-degree murder and served five years of a prison sentence. Now Alicia is out, rearranging her life. She has two young daughters who live with grandparents out of state. On our show, she recalled some of the prison programs that helped her learn to deal nonviolently with the conflicts in her life. Um, I took a corrective thinking course, and it really um, bluntly um, broke down our barriers to us, like playing the victim role and blaming others. And, you know, it just really made made me take a look at how corrupt my thought process was. Just through, you know, people showing me, me seeing that there's a new, different way, there's a better way. And and then having people, you know, believe in me, like push me a little bit, you know, like, come on, you can do it. Just try it once, you know. And um, me being humble enough to accept their advice instead of just thinking I know everything. Um, just tearing the, down those walls of self-righteousness and all that, all the ego, the ego and all that stuff. And being humble and listening to people's advice and, you know, trying new things. Um, that's taken me, you know, 
I'm all right today. Today I'm doing okay. And there hasn't been very many days whenever I could say that for my past, but today I'm all right. What really changed for me whenever I can really like pinpoint was whenever I got my GED. That was like a big day for me because I never have like I never had accomplished anything in my life, you know, anything that I could be proud of, you know. And um, just to see, like, my teacher was so proud of me. And, and you know, it was something that I could show to my family because, you know, just to, just to be a good influence. Because I'm the oldest of six, and um, my brothers and sisters, they mean the world to me. And just to be a good influence on them. Um, I'm sorry. It's okay. It just really means a lot to me to be able to do that. Do you need a moment? No, I'm fine. Thank you. Well, why don't you talk about what some of the um, the advice was that you got that was really important to you, that really helped you? Just to remain open and willing and patient, to give of myself freely, to be humble, to listen, not talk all the time, um, to be grateful. I've learned a lot through being grateful and just setting goals in my life you know I never had goals I didn't even you know goals was like soccer game you know (laughs) I didn't really have goals and it's good now because I starting to see like my life coming back um not fast but like I see little things like my family like is back in my life and I see my my papa for the first time in eight years last month and he was here for three days and it was good to see him you know my sister's here with me my nephew I haven't seen him for years and through all the stuff that I put them through, they've always loved me, and i never been able to give love back, like, proper. So now I'm able to genuinely love people and care about them sincerely as to just being something that said. That's former prison inmate Alicia Wright, trying to make it on the outside now. Phil Perea and Frank Tallardo of Taos, New Mexico, share an unusual bond. In July 2003, Frank Tallardo's 22-year-old son Eric and two others were shot to death. Phil Perea's son, Jason, 26 years old, was convicted of the murders and sentenced to 41 years in prison. Instead of polarizing themselves, the two fathers, Perea and Tallardo, began to work together to help Taos youth out of the cycle of violence by promoting a trade school to offer an alternative to gangs. Phil Perea, father of the convicted son, is heard first here in a 2004 interview with Suzanne Kreider. I got a call from Ben Maestas, which is my pastor in Taos, and told me that um, Frank wanted to meet with me. At that time, I got that phone call when I was in the office of uh, my son's lawyer. The lawyer said, don't go. And I said, why? I said, your son just finished killing his son. They're going to set you up, and they're going to kill you. I don't care what you think, but I've seen it so many times. They're setting you up. When I got out of there, the first thing my wife told me is that, you're going, aren't you? I said, yeah. I know Frank. I know part of his family. And uh, I want to meet with him. I want to see what this man's got to say. When I showed up, we showed up at the church, Calvary Chapel in Taos. Frank showed up a little bit late. And then uh, came in, and the first thing that came out of Frank's mouth was, uh, you tell Jason that I forgive him. And uh, 
he was kind of at the time he said i'm a little shaky i'm a little nervous but uh what i want to know is um can you help me and i said sure what is it you want he said i want to start a program for the youth but i want to go back to really the courage it took you to go to that meeting i mean you must have been a little bit worried if people were telling you hey he might retaliate how did you overcome that fear well, for the first two weeks, I carried a gun. Everybody in town tell me, you got all the right in the world to walk into that uh, police station and ask for a permit, and they'll give it to you because your life is in danger. Not only from Frank, but there's two other fathers. And the first thing they said was, they're going to wipe out the Pereas. I'm the only Perea in Taos. And there's three families coming at me. You know, right after I got a peace of mind, I said, Lord, I hand everything on to you, my son, the whole situation. I put the guns away. I don't need them. And I said, uh, every morning I wake up and I look outside and I say, what a beautiful day to die. If it was my turn, it'd be right there and then. I'll say thank you. Why? You're just sending me home a little sooner. That's all. I'm not worried about death. So it's okay, you're really at peace. Yes. Well, Frank, talk about the possibility of retaliation, because it does seem like that's part of our culture, is that people would expect you to retaliate for your son. Well, the thing about it is <clears throat> I knew Eric really good. I knew I know that he wouldn't retaliate in that way. Uh, he wouldn't want me to. And I wouldn't want him to do it if it was me that was dead. I told Derek's friends at the funeral, at the burial, because I heard a lot of kids saying retaliation, and Eric was well-loved by a lot of friends. And I told him, no retaliation. I don't want no blood on my son's hands. And that's the way I've always felt about uh, myself, too. I'd never wanted any blood on my hands. You know, if somebody comes after me with a gun, I'm going to let him shoot me. I'm not going to try and, and shoot them back. I'll let them take me out. But that's just the way I grew up, and, uh, and those are my beliefs. Well, I'm really impressed with, the, with your religious beliefs that each of you have. And is that really re a requirement for people to forgive and for people to just trust without carrying guns? What do you think, Frank? No, it's not a requirement. Anybody could forgive uh, non-Christians, Christians, wh whoever they are, they, they should uh, learn to forgive. If everybody could forgive or learn to forgive, just think how this world would be. What do you think, Phil? Forgiveness is a healing process. Without forgiveness, I mean, you could get uh, ruined within yourself. Christians usually, and there's a lot of fly-by-night Christians, so-called Christians, you don't know their true colors until something in this occasion happens. If you really feel that you're backed up against the wall and say, Lord, help me, he will. And if you believe in any respect that it'll be solved, resolved without violence, it'll happen, and it'll start with peace a mind, peace within yourself, and saying, i got to work at it. 
but just to say I forgive you and turn around and be bitter, hate and everything, it won't work. Phil Perea's son killed Frank Tolardo's son in 2003 in Taos, New Mexico. Phil and Frank teamed up to try setting up a trade school in Taos to offer local youth a chance out of the cycle of violence. Soldiers returning from combat often face a challenge of both forgiving themselves for the carnage they may have caused in war and forgiving their adversaries once the hostilities are far behind in history. A program to help called Soldier's Heart has set up trips back to Vietnam for veterans of that war. A Vietnam vet, Al Plapp, talked with Carol Boss about his healing journey back to Vietnam in 2011 on Peace Talks Radio. Well, there was always just a little bit of anxiety um, because the last thing you recalled were rockets still going off and people shooting. So you went back and uh, you had just a, intellectually I was fine, but emotionally the imprint was always there. When I stepped on the ground, I was able to see smiles and to see the graciousness of those people that I had experienced a long time before that. And in, in a sense, it felt like, yeah, I know these people. It's like family. Were you meeting with uh, the Viet Cong vets, the North Vietnamese vets, and what kinds of things did you talk about if, if you did meet with them? Well, our first uh, encounter was going down to the Mekong Delta to Tom Tien's place, and Tom Tien was uh, Viet Cong. Uh, he was the former enemy. He greeted us with a big smile and hugs. I mean, that's, uh, you know, you kind of go, wow. Um, and he wants to hear your story. He, uh, he told us his story. We shot him, left him for dead. He was uh, treated for like nine months, as I remember, um, in the Coochie Tunnels and over in there. Um, but he held no grudge. He uh, really wanted to meet the person that shot him to say that he held no grudge, that he forgave him. I'm hiding behind a column so he doesn't notice that I'm staring. Poet Samantha Scalamaro shared her poem called Piano Jazz with us on a Peace Poetry episode of our series. It was inspired by her encounter with troops heading to Iraq at an airport. I feel guilty. I reach into my bag and find two of my photo cards. One has a flower, the other a butterfly. I write them fast poems because my flight leaves in a half hour. I leave the first one in the tip jar for the piano guy. Thank you for your music. It has special power. Then I walk over to the kid and ask, are you coming or going? Going, he says. I think most people never know if they are coming or going. I hand him the card and say, this is for you. And then somewhat dumbstruck, I mumble something feeble like, good luck. I can't look him in the eye, knowing that if I stayed one second longer, I'd break down and cry. The card said, may you find butterflies wherever you go. May music always bring you such joy, and may angels watch over you and keep you safe. Go with grace. And then I signed it with a smiley face. I look back over my shoulder and see him opening the card. I keep going, don't look back again. I get to the security checkpoint and then I lose it. Tears stream down my face thinking they are leaving this place that's safe and I'm going home to my warm bed and any one of them could end up dead. I stick my gear through the x-ray machine. I'm going in slow motion. It feels like a dream. 
The Uniformed Transit Security Administration agent notices my state. Are you going to be all right, ma'am, he asks. I sniff and nod. And with that collared green accent, he says, you just left your sweetie, huh? And I cry, shake my head no, and think, but someone just did, and they're just kids. Even the officer, I'm sure that I'm older than him. I'm awash in tears. I wave the lady behind me on, and this beautiful black man says again, are you okay? And I say, I'm just overwhelmed by the number of soldiers still going to Iraq. He looks me in the eye, says assuringly, it's okay, they want to go. And I shake my head like, I don't know. And he takes something out of his wallet and shows me his veteran's ID to prove that he knows what he's talking about. And then he says to me, do you need a hug? And I nod an involuntary yes. He leans across the conveyor belt to comfort this unbrave woman and says, don't worry, they'll be okay. Just pray. Poet Samantha Scalamaro. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, on air and online since 2002. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today another in our programs presenting highlights of the series from the first 10 years of it, 2002 to 2012, including our episode that looked at the possibilities of amicable divorce. There are high-conflict divorces, of course, that sometimes put the children in the middle. New Mexico therapist Sam Roll offered his take on how to minimize the hurt for kids and adults. It's not that children are sometimes hurt by divorce. Children are always hurt by divorce. But that doesn't mean that they're hurt more by divorce than by a bad marriage. But they're always hurt by divorce. And children recover. But they only recover to the degree that two things happen. There's frequent predictable contact with both parents and there's reduced hostility. Once they realize that by not reducing their hostility and resolving their conflicts, they will hurt what they love most in the world, their children, they sometimes then become determined to work things out. But sometimes they don't care if they hurt the children. They are so angry. They are so angry that they're willing to destroy what they love most in the world, to hurt what they love most in the world in order to win, in order to hit back, in order to express their bitterness. So how do you work on those competitive elements? Well, at the rational level, you help them see concretely how it is that they're hurting the children. That is a wake-up call for most people. And you help them see, you help people see, or you help them discover how it is that by not giving up their their old anger and hurt, they are continuing to hurt, and they're tying themselves together in a shackle of animosity and hatred. If uh, it's not as simple as telling them the story, but I think the story that the Dalai Lama told, that one of the stories he told when he was here, I think contained it. He told a story of two monks who were um, going to a shrine to clean it up and, and keep it looking nice so that the people who, who meditated there could be at peace. And it was high in the mountains, and so any time it rained, any little creek became a river. And when they were on their way, they met a, a woman who was sitting by a river, a creek that had uh, become a river, and she was sitting with a basket of food, and she was crying. And one of the monks said to her, what's the matter? She said, well, I crossed the river to buy food for my children for the week, and then it rained. And if I try to cross the river, the river may take my food, and my children won't eat this week. 
or the river may take me and they won't have a mother. One of the monks said to her, listen, my brother is big and strong. You give him the basket and he will hold it on his head and he will cross and your children will eat. And he said, and I am even stronger. You will sit on my shoulder and I will carry your cross and you'll be safe and your children will have a mother. When they got to the other side of the expanded creek, she gave them a little token, a little money to take to the shrine and, and honor their loving kindness. An hour later, one monk turns to the other and says, you know, when we became monks, we, would, we said, we vowed that we would never touch a woman, even the hem of her garment. And now you had the softest, most tender part of a woman's anatomy on your neck. And his brother said, you're right. But you know, I put her down an hour ago. You're still carrying her. Carrying old hurts repeats the hurt, and it's a responsibility for the person carrying the hurt to set it down. And it's not only your responsibility, it's your vested interest to put down the old hurt, or else you can die of the poison of carrying around vengeance. Nations have done it. People have done it. Religions have done it. New Mexico psychologist Sam Roll. Even more tragic than a high-conflict divorce is relationships that go sour and wind up in domestic violence or even murder. A personal friend of mine, University of New Mexico English professor Hector Torres, and his girlfriend, Stefania Gray, were murdered by Gray's jealous former boyfriend. The incident led us to ask, where are the programs that help young people learn more about relationships earlier on in their lives so such dreadful tales will be more rare in the future? We found few programs in the United States, one called Start Strong Bronx, though, and more going on in Canada, where scholar David Wolf had developed a program called the Fourth R, standing for Relationships. That program was being tested there to help reduce scenes like this. I'm 130, uh, 9.30. Listen, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. Here's a clip from a film produced in part by Start Strong Bronx. It's the story of one high school boy from a house where the father is abusing the mother and his girlfriend who's getting better relationship modeling at her home between her mother and father. In a climactic scene, the boy winds up showing early signs of abusive behavior to his dating partner because he's acting out on the only relationship modeling he's been exposed to. I need you here with me this summer. Rick, we got accepted. I said, I need you here this summer. We can talk about it. We can find a way to make it work. We don't need to talk about anything, because you're going to be with me this summer. We're not done talking. Yes, we are. Why are you doing this to me? You're making me do this. Yeah, just like your mom made your dad hit her. You begun testing this fourth R curriculum. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the results? To test it, we had to randomize schools. We had 20 schools in our school district that we randomized. And uh, we delivered the program in their grade 9 health class uh, in those 10 schools that received the program. There were, oh, I think 35 or 40 classes in all. And then we compare them to the schools that didn't get uh, the program and follow those kids for two and a half years till the end of grade 11 to see if they had reduced their dating violence, substance use, safer sex, and so forth. And dating violence was the first thing, the main thing we were looking at. And that was significantly reduced, especially for boys. Critically, you are able to have an effect on what they are doing to one another by teaching this information. Well, David Wolf, in the context of our program today, which uh, initiates from my experience with a friend being lost to uh, 
relationship homicide. Make your case for how the work that you're doing and the programs that you've developed can really have an impact on reducing the number of horrible tragedies that we see all too often in our news. That's an easy case for me to make because uh, we're talking about a public health issue now. We're talking about uh, roughly 30% of children um, are estimated to be abused in their lifetime. And that's based on adult samples, retrospectively, as well as current samples of, of youth. That means a lot of people out there aren't really uh, exposed to as good a models as they could be and may, may make a lot of mistakes in their relationship. So from a public health perspective, it's like fluoride in the water. Everyone needs to get a bit of dose of healthy relationships, alternatives to what they expect in a relationship to make some shifts in how they learn respect and such. And if we don't teach it in the school, it's haphazard, very haphazard. And they may make many errors in their relationships before they they might learn their lesson. And I don't know what effect in the long term it would have on homicidal violence. Uh, we have to keep in mind that with any prevention, the biggest challenge is that there will still be some tragedies. And that doesn't mean we give up the prevention. Uh, it means that we, we try even harder. David Wolf, psychology and psychiatry professor at the University of Toronto, discussing his work in co-creating the fourth R, a relationship-based violence prevention program for schools aimed at heading off domestic and dating violence behaviors. <laughs> Sometimes to come up with a show topic, we just ask, where in life do we often experience conflict? And who has some ideas about reducing conflict there? Such was the case when our host Suzanne Kreider was wondering about the conflict in the workplace and talked with noted psychologist and author William Urey, whose book Getting to Peace had just been re-released under the title The Third Side. Most of our listeners go to work or they've had jobs in the past Talk about one or two of the resolve roles and how people can use those in the workplace to prevent conflict. One of the roles is, is the role of the mediator and everyone in the workplace. Uh, we, you, know, you don't have to be a professional mediator, but everyone in the workplace is a third party. They hear, they see uh, two people or two departments get into a conflict. And there are informal ways in which we can play the role of a mediator, which is to listen to each side to hear them out, to try and communicate each to the other what the other one is saying, to bring them together, to encourage them to work it out. Uh, we can play that role of a mediator. And every manager, you know, whether they think about it or not, for example, is a mediator uh, of sorts. They have to mediate among their staff. They have to mediate uh, among their bosses sometimes. They have to mediate among their colleagues. Everyone, in fact, in the workplace can play that role of a third-sider. But one of the roles also is the role of the, of the healer, which is that there's an emotional dimension to a lot of conflicts. Uh, human beings, we all, we all have emotions. And so oftentimes those feelings, they, you know, the relationship needs to be healed. It's not just enough to resolve the conflict. As, as you know, the Bushmen teach us, you have to bring the people back into a relationship so that they can continue to work together because, after all, that's, that's, that's what you're doing in the workplace. Do you see the possibility that workplaces might even want to talk more openly about third side roles or are there a lot of mediation programs already in workplaces? Well it's beginning. Uh, there's been a huge shift in the last uh, 30 years that I've been uh, involved in, and watching. Uh, now, now, nowadays, I mean for example labor management conflicts. I mean labor management conflicts 
a hundred years ago, there used to be a lot of violence in that. Even when I worked in labor management uh, in in the coal mines back in the in the 70s, there were uh, you know there were bomb threats and people were packing guns. Nowadays, people are learning to talk things out. They're learning, okay, we can negotiate. There are negotiation courses. There are mediators involved. There's been a, a lot more sophistication now in the workplace about how to deal with with differences. And and the work has just begun. We're, we have we have a ways to go, but I do see a, a, a lot of progress in the last uh, in the last generation. Noted author William Urey on workplace conflict. What if the conflict is between you as a customer service rep and an irate customer? Suzanne Kreider told a story on herself, losing patience in a shoe repair store one time, to customer service expert Mary Cooley. I was screaming at the top of my voice at people. And actually, the last thing I remember is somebody behind me in line said, I think we should call the police. Oh, no. Yeah, I mean, I just totally lost it. So he was being accurate, (sighs) but I was completely misunderstanding. Right. So what does a customer service rep do when they encounter somebody like me who's just lost it? Well, I think the worst thing people do is, is... embattle that customer is, lady, that's not what you said, or I I fixed the heel, what more do you want? And I think we've all been in those situations. I really do like the acronym that we use in training, which is HEAT. First, when a customer is irate, hear them out. Don't engage. Don't have nonverbals with your arms crossed in front of you that say, I'm tuned out, I'm not listening. So just hear them out. Let that person voice however they have to voice their concerns. The next one is just empathize with them. If that were happening to me, how would I feel? Third, and I don't think this happens nearly enough today, is say, we're sorry. I'm sorry, we're sorry, I'm sorry this occurred to you. Again, be sincere about the situation. And T, the last one is, okay, so what? Where do we go from here? Take responsibility for what occurred. I can, I can tell by what transpired here that you're clearly not happy with, with the shoes. It's important that I get this right. Here's what I am able to do. Here's what I'm willing to do. Take responsibility, ownership for it. Okay. Get it fixed. Customer service expert Mary Cooley on Peace Talks with host Suzanne Kreider. Suzanne also led a panel on the role of the media in peacemaking in 2004 or the media's role promoting violence, as media reform advocate Bob McCannon argued in a conversation that also included Leanne Potts, who at the time was a features writer for the Albuquerque Journal. The irony is that the media never tell parents to what extent the research shows the level that (coughs) watching violence makes kids more aggressive and, more importantly, desensitizes them to the pain and suffering of others. The research on that is just mind-boggling. And it's important to recognize that the Hollywood PR machine criticizes this on the basis of saying, well, it's just correlations. The bottom line is that that information is not getting out there. Kids are learning to resolve conflict through violence. And I believe it carries over to citizens are thinking in this country that the way to resolve national conflicts is through huge military budgets and through sending those troops off to fight wars where video game kind of weapons are used and come back and they see it on TV. Leanne, what's your sense about how media impacts people's ability to resolve conflict? I think you learn conflict resolution skills from many sources. Media is one. It's a powerful one. 
Um, I think you need to, if you're not making the human connections in your lives to learn to learn some of this, uh, the fault is with you. I mean, there are other ways to learn your resolution than what Rupert Murdoch tells you or what you know, a newspaper headline writer tells you or what Dan Rather tells you. I mean, come on. The world's a lot bigger than that. What motivates people to learn those skills, though, on their own? Caring about who they who they are and what their impact is on the world. Caring, caring. If you just want to be entertained and you just want to sit and watch, then no, you're not going to do do any better. But I mean, if you care about making the world a better place, if you want things to be differently, that's what's going to motivate you. If you want to keep, if you want to continue to be a, a very violent nation, and I might add that we've been a violent nation long long before there was television, radio, and video games, we were a violent nation. I mean, we have it written in our constitution, our right to bear guns. You know, we, we, t- we take our, our weapons real seriously in this culture. I, I would argue that maybe this culture has never been real good at conflict resolution. Maybe that's a skill we've yet to master. I'm Paul Ingalls, and you're listening to highlights of the Peace Talks radio series. In one episode in our series, we met Mark Johnson, the music recording engineer behind the viral video smash Stand By Me, which brought together dozens of musicians from around the world, all adding their parts, often on the streets of their hometowns, to a single recording of the soul music classic. Johnson's efforts spawned a CD, a DVD, and a live tour under the banner Peace Through Music. All proceeds from these remarkable performances were going to help build music schools in impoverished communities around the globe. Mark Johnson was interviewed for Peace Talks Radio by Carol Boss. Have you ever met up with any skeptics of any sort who might say, yeah, you know, this is all really nice, but what can it do? really do to to connect us, to bring peace? I have, of course. I've, I've definitely run into skeptics. But I think at the end of the day, in my personal opinion, this is the root of what we need as a planet to come together because there's no other thing that intrinsically will connect us. So religion and politics, they can be beautiful, but they guarantee division. Music can guarantee connection if that's at the intention. So Although there's plenty of other uh, ways to, to go about trying to unite people, music is, in my opinion, the best way. Why don't you share with us some of your favorite tracks and, and perhaps some stories about recording them? So after we started Stand By Me, we wanted to have a similar song with a similar aesthetic and a similar unifying quality. So we chose Bob Marley's One Love. As we were recording that song, we started it with a steel guitar from New Orleans. <laughs> And the thing about it was it was after Hurricane Katrina, so the feeling in the city was rather sorrowful. So you can see that the steel guitar opens up with a, um, with a feeling of, of more of a blues gospel feel. And then when we went down to South Africa to record Sinamuva, which is a choir, a Zulu choir in Umlazi, South Africa, we went up to a little mountaintop, put headphones on them, and they started to sing in Zulu. You know, I, don't, I think we, we had thought that they were going to sing in English. So when we heard them singing in Zulu, it opened up this whole new world for us where we don't have to try to take these songs and turn them into... Um, you know, what they were traditionally written, we can expand and, and try to get people to contribute their own style and make them their own. 
And uh, that, that sort of was an amazing experience for us. So that song became a, an amazing track for me just because of the journey and seeing everybody saying, you know, let's get together and feel all right. spotlighted peacemaking messages in music there, and peacemaking messages in a popular television franchise was the topic of another Peace Talks radio episode. Just for fun, we explored a bunch of Star Trek episodes from the original 1960s era TV series. We found the writers musing on the war and peace issues of those times as the U.S. was locked in the midst of the Cold War with the then Soviet Union. Star Trek episode writer and fan David Gerald helped us analyze one episode called A Taste of Armageddon, which concludes with a speech by Captain James T. Kirk, played by William Shatner, of course, trying to convince a planet's leaders to avoid war with a rival planet. You realize what you have done? Yes, I do. I've given you back the horrors of war. The Vendikins will now assume that you've broken your agreement and that you're preparing to wage real war with real weapons. They'll want to do the same. Only the next attack they launch will do a lot more than just count up numbers on a computer. They'll destroy your cities, devastate your planet. You, of course, will want to retaliate. If I were you, I'd start making bombs. Yes, Councilman, you have a real war on your hands. You can either wage it with real weapons, or you might consider an alternative. Put an end to it. Make peace. There can be no peace. Don't you see? We've admitted it to ourselves. We're a killer species. It's instinctive. It's the same with you. All right. It's instinctive. The instinct can be fought. We're human beings with the blood of a million savage years on our hands. But we can stop it. We can admit that we're killers, but we're not going to kill today. That's all it takes. Knowing that we're not going to kill today. Contact Vendikar. I think you'll find that they're just as terrified, appalled, horrified as you are. That they'll do anything to avoid the alternative I've given you. Peace or utter destruction. It's up to you. David Gerald, you write that this Taste of Armageddon episode was one of the better ones, you thought. What do you like about this in the context of our conversation today? Well, what I like about A Taste of Armageddon is that great speech that Kirk gives at the end, in which I have often said, I mean, it's become a personal mantra, okay, yes, I'm descended from killer apes, but today I'm not going to kill. I think what that speech represents is the rationality of of a self-aware, self-actualized being taking responsibility for the evolutionary um, heritage. Uh, you know, we all have these little reptilian corte- cortexes at the base of our skull that, you know, we just, you know, our hands curl up into fists and we just want to punch that person in the face for being, 
such a terrible person in our judgment. But Kirk is saying, no, we're, we don't do that because we respect rationality. We respect, we understand that people have different views, different opinions, and it's time that we learn to respect each other and, and uh, uh, listen to each other and learn from each other and that we don't have to fight. Uh, and he says it all in two sentences, and I think that the script writing in that was probably, uh, you know, I don't know who wrote that exact speech, but whoever it was, I, I, you know, that was the reason they were put here on this earth. Billions of people have seen that episode now and have heard that line, and, and if it has impacted even a small percentage of them, that's still millions and millions of people who think, and today I'm not going to kill. This is good news. <laughs> David Gerald, author of The World of Star Trek. Well, to conclude today, a little taste of optimism. Although on Peace Talks Radio, we look at the work going on to address the all-too-prevalent existing conflicts in our world, it was of some relief to hear the take of Harvard scholar Steven Pinker, whose book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, suggests that over time, much progress has been made toward peace, and that now may be the most peaceful era in the history of the planet, and that we are learning what works in making this a more peaceful world. Studies uh, that, that try to identify what has driven rates of war down have identified some pretty good candidates, including UN peacekeeping forces and, and other uh, peacekeeping missions, and the, uh, the overall pacifying effects of, of trade and commerce, uh, and the spread of uh, humanitarian ideals, that is, valuing the individual over the uh, state or the ethnic group. Uh, if you look at all the risk factors for war, both major war between great powers, which does the most damage, and smaller wars amongst uh, uh, weaker countries in the developing world, the indicators are all positive. That is, to the best that you can predict, and admittedly that's a, a dicey proposition, the prediction would be that the risk of war will continue to go down. Again, you can hear all of the full episodes from which these excerpts came, as well as many more episodes by visiting our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. For other helpful links and access to all the programs in our series dating back to 2002. There as well, you can send us your feedback, sign up for a free monthly newsletter, subscribe to a free podcast, and importantly, it's where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to the nonprofit media organization that produces this program with the intent of protecting some of the media landscape for talk about peacemaking on a regular basis. Your support is critical to our survival. In addition to support from listeners like you, support also comes from the Eric Oppenheimer Family Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. The executive director of our nonprofit media organization, Good Radio Shows Incorporated, is Nola Daves Moses. Music was performed and composed by Ali Adelman. I'm Paul Ingalls. For Carol Boss and Suzanne Kreider, thank you for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.